This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. All hands are on deck, as you might imagine, for election day. Polls open at 10 o'clock. They close at 8 if you're in line at 8. Or if you say you're in line, or you can get three people to validate you're in line, and they all must be blood relatives. That last part I made up. You can still vote if you're in line at 8 o'clock. I can't imagine someone showing up at 759 and going, look at the line. But I do remember actually voting in the federal election, waiting forever. What was that in 2021? I remember it took forever to vote. I went in the evening. That was a mistake. Um, God, did I, I think I did advanced polling in the provincial election on a Saturday. And I know that this was the case because I also saw a car very similar to mine. Um, I think my wife was out of town. So, you know, you get a bit discombobulated. And I opened the car door. And sometimes you see a car that looks exactly like yours and you pull at the door and usually it's locked and you're like, oh, damn it, this isn't even my car. But I'd almost sat down in the damn car by the time I uh, realized this is not my car. Also, I saw like a mark on the outside and I'm like, somebody hit me in the parking lot and now I'm going to go sit down in my car and contemplate what to do next. Yeah, it it wasn't even your car. So by the way, all that to say, I sure probably made a great choice in voting. I mean, I sure sounded like I sound like I'm of sound mind and body back in June of 22 or late May of 22 when I voted in an advanced poll. But many of you have almost 200,000 have already in voting for the next mayor of Toronto. And it bears the question, a couple important questions this morning. How on earth did we get here? It's been a surreal four and a half months. I think that that's not an exaggeration. We've seen people come out and back into politics that we never actually expected to see again. That's right. I'm talking about and to Ms. Olivia Chow. It's been nine years since she ran for mayor in 2014, over a decade and change since she'd been in politics, really, in, in federal politics. But as of now, and we can mention the polls leading up to 10 o'clock, uh, it's going to take um, either a huge undecided push or just a good mobilization, probably, of the Anna Bailau supporters to get out and do this. And if, by the way, if Bailau supporters come out and think there's something to play for here, we're going to be engaged and energetic and uh, and we're going to make sure our voices are heard and and the Chow support wanes or is apathetic or says, ah, she's going to win. Why do I need to go? Well, stranger election results have happened. Maybe not in Toronto, but certainly in other municipalities and certainly uh, in North America. They certainly have. How do we get here again? Well, you might remember this the Friday coming into mid-February, a few days before Valentine's Day, no less, and two days before the Super Bowl. How do I know this? I was on an Arizona rooftop party patio thing and I was having a grand old time when I looked and I had 11 text messages on my phone. 11 people never. Are you kidding? 11 people don't contact me within an hour, within a whole day, let alone an hour. And I knew something was up and this is what it was. Responsibilities during the pandemic. As a result, I've decided that I will step down as mayor so that I can take the time to reflect on my mistakes and to do the work of rebuilding the trust of my family. I'll be working with the city manager, the city clerk, and the deputy mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, to ensure an orderly transition in the coming days. While I deeply regret having to step away from a job that I love in a city that I love even more, I believe in my heart it is best to fully commit myself to the work that is required to repair these most important relationships.
Okay. I know a lot of jokes have been made about John Tory, and, and I'm not one that really revels in that kind of stuff. That's a tough moment for a human being, a man, a woman, whomever, uh, to admit that they breached someone's trust so personally, so profoundly, and as it turns out, as he had to get out there so publicly. Uh, but it's led us to this four and a half months later. And by the way, Tory was out and about at Pride and a couple other events. Uh, barracking for Anna Bailao. So we wondered whether he would on Friday. He indeed has. Here's Olivia Chow and her only Toronto Today appearance um, about nine, ten weeks ago. I asked her about cutting things. I asked her about trimming fat off the budget. This was her response. Uh, I can't tell you right now because uh, I'm not 100% uh, sure that there's any fat left. Because I think we, the city service has been cut to the bone, cut to the bone marrow. Because every year I've noticed there's more cuts to TDC. I, you can't, you get into the TDC station. There's no officer. The TDC folks, it's not behind the screen anymore, right? Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And so I think there's too many cuts already. In fact, I want to restore TDC, what? get those people back onto this thing. Well, will, that, will the numbers... Okay, I, absolutely. And that's something you advocate for. But to do that, this is a lot like a family budget, right? We've all done those. If you spend here, you can't spend here. There must be something that pops into your head and you go... This is excessive. This does. This is unnecessary. Where, whereas you're you're talking about the things that are necessary. What's excessive? What's unnecessary in Toronto? Well, uh, let me tell you. I've been on uh, the budget committee for ten years. I I know how to do family budget because I'm the one that did right. family budget for many years. The roof is leaking. It's not trying to maybe sell a piece of furniture here and there, the roof is actually leaking. And we need to uh, ask and work. Well, we all have to pay the fair share, you know, in terms Mm. of uh, how much we pay in terms of taxes and all that stuff. Okay, look, I maybe she got more reassuring on the campaign trail with some of the actual bread and butter economics of it, but I know that that didn't reassure people way back when. We'll see where it goes today. 613, Shiva Siddiqui joins me right now. Do you have a feeling, when you hear that cut, what do you think from nine weeks ago when we, were, when we had Olivia Chow on? I feel frustration because I'm trying to get her on for the last nine weeks to come and join us, and she just keeps dodging us along with many other stations and, and media. Uh she doesn't give any straight answers and she has been leading in this race from the beginning since she stepped mm-hmm. in. And I think a lot of that is nostalgia. A lot of that has to do with Jack Layton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also feel like it's a popularity contest in a lot of ways. Like it's high school all over again, really. Who is the most well-known name? How do we know her? What's her history to Toronto? And no doubt that, you know, she, she has done a lot of good for the city in the roles that she's played. Whether... Uh, I, I see her in the mayoral position. I don't even know what her policies are. She's so vague about them. So hopefully, if she closes this, we can find out more. Yeah, yeah. And how she can work with council. She says, I won't use strong mayor power, so she'll need a, you know, a, like a, like a, she'll need democracy to work her way. Uh-huh. There were a couple of councillors that have endorsed her. Lily Cheng, who we've had on our show, gave a late night endorsement last night. But several councillors, as you know, Sheba, have, um, have have endorsed uh, Anna Bailao. So, I, I, like I said, I think if the Bailao people get way, way out there and are really aggressive and energetic, and the Chow people aren't, but I don't, ex- I don't know that I expect that to happen. It's, it would be a story among stories for us to wake up tomorrow morning and for Anna Bailao to be elected mayor. I think we could agree on that. 
Oh, absolutely it would. Uh, and, and because of these polls as well, I will have absolutely no faith in any poll ever if someone other than <laughs> Olivia Chow wins, really, to be honest with you, because that's all they've been polling on is her. So let's see how right or wrong they are. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Pride did happen over the weekend, a pride parade all through the weekend, big celebrations. We previewed it on Friday. I asked Sheba earlier, I said, where will this be 15 years from now? Where will the parade be? We had 2.7 million people in the downtown core yesterday. You know what? Honestly, you want to promote a product or anything, be part of Pride because you can't find more people to be associated with it. Now, now, um, is there pushback about the parade? Well, I'm not sure about that. And I'm getting texts from people about naked men and whatnot. Um, I understand. I understand. And I see both sides of it. You're not being this phobic or that phobic or this phobic or that phobic saying, I don't know, should this necessarily be the case? I think those are very fair and valid questions. And I don't know where I will land on it. I'm not trying to ride the fence on this one. You know, I don't ride the fence on certain issues um, in this particular uh, context. I'll put it that way. I thought these two comments were interesting. Uh, Milo Law is somebody that decided to come to Pride and is uh, is basically out as who they would like to be and said this to Global News. Two years ago, I came out as gender fluid. So I have my flag here and I have just, we've kind of like walked down. We found this spot and I think it's a great spot and I'm very happy so far. I've been loving it. Fantastic. Like that, that's what that day is meant for. That's why there's a celebration. That's why there's a need for it. That's why it does indeed happen. Sherwin Modesta is the executive director of Pride. You'd know him well in media circles. Here's what he said about this particular day in 2023. Despite the hate that has been coming towards our community, we have seen nothing but love. The energy on the streets of Toronto towards the 2SLGBTQ community have been amazing. Pretty amazing. And again, let me emphasize this again. To be gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer, two-spirit in any other country, I'm not sure they measure up to Canada in terms of rights, in terms of protections, in terms of understanding, in terms of festivities, in terms of freedom, in terms of education in schools. There's not too many countries that measure up. So sometimes we emphasize the rough patches and the things that people do have questions about and people do have debates about. We're a lot further along than our parents were, and they got a lot further along eventually in most cases. I mean, the data just shows it than their parents ever could have, ever could have even foreseen and ever ended up doing. Now, I know that the LGBTQ youth face issues in schools and society. Of course they do. I'm reading a survey about more uh, being threatened with weapons and being bullied on school property and experiencing cyberbullying. Now, I don't I see these particular numbers of LGBTQ youth facing this, and it must be very difficult. It's pretty documented. Suicide rates are higher for LGBTQ youth. And by the way, is there more pressure, do I think, on LGBTQ uh, kids to be who they are and get right out there, maybe before they're ready yet, to some extent. But that comes with the freedom and the push to some extent to say, you'll be okay. Our society will have you almost more than any other society in North America, Europe, Asia, Africa, where Far East, wherever, wherever. And that's a good thing. That's absolutely a good thing. 
that that ends up being the case. But there is that sort of push on the other, I won't even call it the other side, where if you disagree with somebody about something, you call them anti. That seems to be what happens when you don't want to debate and deal with data and you don't want to deal with logic or somebody's not moving fast enough for your perspective to accept, accept. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. You call that person anti something. You do that. Like imagine being called like if I were to be called anti drag, like all somebody like me wonders, wonders is should drag shows be for adults only? Well, I kind of lean that way. Should they be in non-public spaces? I kind of lean that way also. Imagine just having that opinion and not being hateful or violent or throwing names or accusations towards people who disagree with me on that per se. I'm willing to be convinced. I'm willing for my opinion to be involved. But I'm sitting here asking questions, honestly, quite innocently. You'd have a really tough time painting me as anti-drag when for my whole life I haven't given it a second thought. Be who you want to be. Absolutely. I'm not for censorship. I'm not for limitations in the home. I'm not for limitations in private businesses ever, 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 ever. I'm the last guy that says, let's make sure this isn't available to people. Let's censor this. Let's do that. I see this sentence in the Toronto Star article from yesterday that talks about, you know, like like anti LGBTQ views. And I read the sentence in the U.S. At least 20 states have enacted laws that either limit or outlaw gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors as part of a larger suite of restrictions being imposed by Republican-led state legislatures. Look, are some Republicans, some, bigots about this kind of stuff? Absolutely they are. Do I feel it comes from a strong anti-LGBTQ slant? Yes, I do. But let me make this point about surgeries for 12, 13, 14-year-olds. No one was doing these things a decade ago. No one. So we don't keep an eye on it or a spotlight or have questions or debates about it. Like I'm talking about kids. It's just all okay, And we don't ask questions about how it's going and making sure that it is going okay. By the way, I know many people who are uh, gay, bisexual, lesbian or, or don't feel comfortable in their own body right now. And some are very public about it and some are absolutely private because if it's it's none of my damn business or your damn business, if they're gay or not. They're going to take their own schedule and take their own time. It doesn't mean society is restricting them somehow. If anything, they're not. But they're going to do their own thing. I'll always fight and argue for marginalized people. I always will. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. He wrote about Toronto's housing crisis in the Globe and Mail. He's Globe and Mail architecture critic. And we welcome him back to Toronto Today, Alex Bozikovic. It's great to have you back. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Greg. You obviously paid a ton of attention to housing platforms. Um, If housing isn't the most important issue, it's certainly interconnected to practically everything else. Transit, safety, homelessness, the economy. Um, Were there plans that jumped to the forefront to you from mayoral candidates, Alex, and and gave a ton more detail, whereas other ones were very vague about what the candidates would do? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it's clear from looking at everybody's platforms together, that there's a consensus that building a lot more housing is what the city needs. How we're going to get there, though, is tricky. Um, You've got a lot of emphasis coming from the leading candidates on the left about building more social housing, (coughs) excuse me, which I think is necessary. But on the other side, and the larger numbers, I think, are going to come from allowing the market, uh, which is a word some people don't like, to build a lot of housing. And how we get there 
is going to be very tricky. And then while a number of candidates have sort of pledged their, their commitment to that idea, I haven't really seen any evidence that anyone's getting into the weeds on it. And of course, there was a lot of, um, how would I put it, Alex, like NIMBY name calling about le- legitimate NIMBY name calling in some context. And there has been outside of, of Toronto as well, where people say, sure, build a multiplex um, here in my community, but maybe not on my street or just around the corner from it because people are concerned about either the neighborhood or their own property values. There's that balancing act, isn't there? They invested and spent a lot on their home, and they don't want to lose value in it. That's true, but you know, there isn't really a lot of evidence that adding new housing to a neighborhood or even to a block actually reduces people's home values. I mean, first of all, I don't really think that it's government's job to worry about keeping um, you know someone's house price up. Mm-hmm. In fact, one could argue that the opposite is really what we need to be doing at this point. But you look at some of the most expensive places in the entire region, and you have a mix of houses and apartments. You know, the example I like to give for this is a street called Admiral Road in the annex in Toronto, which backs onto St. George Street. There are a bunch of apartment buildings that went up there in the 1950s and early 1960s. And you've got places where buildings that are 10 and 12 stories tall are right in the backyards of five, six, seven million dollar houses. Clearly doesn't seem to trouble people that much. No, it, it really doesn't. Um, the the other issue is certainly I think people have realized over the course of this election, Alex, that the, the housing crisis is a southern Ontario crisis. It's not the only place in Canada, but even data last week from uh, from Dr. Mike Moffat, where you read London, Ontario's rent is more expensive than any of Tokyo, Paris or Barcelona. And you say whatever's been happening is in Toronto has pushed a lot of shock waves out two hours this way and four hours that way. It's a problem. I'm glad to hear you say that because that is exactly correct. You know, one of the two major sort of causes for unaffordability across the province really is the fact that a lot of people want to live in Toronto or as close to Toronto as possible, and there aren't enough places for them to live in. Mm -hmm. That's not the only issue, but it's a big one. And what's interesting to me is that the city of Toronto doesn't seem to recognize that as an issue itself. You know, the city of Toronto, if you speak to the, the people who run the planning department, you know, will say... The province gave us a target of so many new residents and so many new homes to build, and we're going to hit their target, so we're doing well. Whereas I would argue that the city's leadership really needs to ask, are we building all of the housing that we can? Is the city growing as quickly as possible so that we can stop that sort of overflow, stop those shock waves from going out across the province? It, it does feel like we finally got like a like a like I've described this election as almost a, a bucket of water to the face on a lot of issues, but certainly housing. And we can put a t- point a ton of fingers on the two current counselors, Josh Madlow and Brad Bradford, and saying you're all for multiplexes. Now, we didn't hear you yelling or screaming or standing on top of chairs in the last eight years. Same with Anna Bylaw, who's only been out of council a year. You could even push this back to Olivia Chow or even, the you know, even D- David Miller for eight years. Multiplexes were banned during David. Miller's eight years. So there's a lot of people that have stood in the way of progress of, of public housing construction plans. Yep. I think the, the blame is widespread on this issue. And a lot of people have had learning curves on this issue. Mm-hmm. You know, when John Tory first ran for mayor, he was in 2003, I think it was, he was the adamantly anti-development. You know, he was talking about how bringing, you know, high rise into North Toronto would be a terrible thing. 
And most recently, uh, just before he left, you know, he gave a little speech where he talked about his new housing action platform. And he was saying a lot of the same things that you just said about how housing correctly, about how housing is a spectrum. You know, if there isn't enough housing for people who are middle class, they're going to end up taking apartments that would have gone to people who have less money and so on. Uh, you know, I mean, John Tory eventually got this. Um, it took him a while and it's taken everybody a while. Um, so we'll see. I only have about 40 seconds here, but what's the immediate level of pressure for the mayor to work with council and then mayor and council to unify and go to the province and the federal government and say, we really need to be on the same page here. If we can, if we can modify Toronto, we can fix, we can help at least fix a lot of these other municipalities in the short term. Well, I mean, the city is going to need help building any sort of subsidized housing. Right. There's no question about that. But the city has a ton of power by itself to actually open up its zoning and allow more people to build housing and more people to live in some neighborhoods like mine, which have a lot of infrastructure of all kinds and actually have fewer people than they used to have 50 years ago. The city doesn't need any help from anybody else to do that. You know, there are a lot of people who want to build housing in the city and that ultimately is a good thing and the city should get on with it. Yeah. And wipe out a lot of this uh, red tape. Uh, he's a great read in the Globe and Mail. Alex, thanks for the time this morning. Thank you, Greg. Alex uh, Bozikovic uh, this morning joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Utterly bizarre story from the States. And um, again, I'd like to do stories that I can't necessarily relate to. But um, I think Sheba Siddiqui can is the idea of being a woman in an Uber or a taxi solo with a male driver. Even my wife said, like, she's taken cabs all over cabs and ubers all over the planet um because of her travels and sometimes she feels a little more you know yes. just just aware right your the hair stands up on on the back of your neck a little more than others i don't think she's ever been like i gotta get out of this car immediately but you get a vibe right in those first couple minutes stepping in a cab or a absolutely or an uber. absolutely you do and it also depends on the time of day yeah where you are in the world all these factors play in uh but i mean i've never had a bad experience knock on wood uh, in an uber I'm also very talkative, so I try to find out as much. I like to talk to, I like to hear their stories. I love hearing people's stories, no matter who you are. Uh, but I've never had a bad experience. But this, in this case, there was, this was a different situation. Yeah, this is in Texas. So a woman's been charged with murder um, who's from Kentucky, but she was in El Paso, Texas, visiting her boyfriend. El Paso, Texas is close to the border. And so she shot an Uber driver that she thought was kidnapping her. And police say her statement is that she thought she was taken into Mexico. She shot the driver. The 52-year-old driver died in hospital after several days on life support. But she says, I saw traffic signs that read Juarez, Mexico. The two cities are right next to each other. This would be like Windsor, Detroit or or um, or Buffalo, Fort Erie. And she's thinking, I don't know what time of night this was, Sheba. That's the, that's the hard part to figure out. But she, she thought she was being kidnapped. She pulled a gun from her handbag and she shot the driver in the head. The car hit barriers before coming to a stop. This is crazy. Crazy. The fact that you can so brazenly just pull the the gun out of your purse and just shoot someone right in the head, I feel like that's not the first time, if it's that easy. Uh, And obviously, I mean, just pull out your phone. Look at your Google Maps or whatever to figure out what country you're in. I think this was premature. It's unfortunate this person has passed away after uh, several days in the hospital. Uh, And I just don't understand... But you know what? Nothing surprises me from down south anymore. 
No, this is really something. I mean, look at the look at what happened on the on the subway. Right. There's the former um, military guy that's being charged with, you know, uh, manslaughter for taking a person that was homeless who he deemed was threatening people. That didn't seem to be for debate, but he's thought to have used excessive force in kind of choking him out. This is a different. Again, there's so much we don't know about this particular story. And at the same time. You know, like the, the the cops don't seem to believe it. I'm surprised the El Paso police statement said the investigation does not support that a kidnapping took place or that Pedro was veering from um, the, the passenger's destination. So I don't know how you sh- again, it's it's not a it's not an accident. It's not a manslaughter charge. It's murder. And I would assume mm. it's second degree murder at 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 most that it's you know, it's not a premeditated act, but she got in the car. She panicked. And she had a loaded gun. By the way, if I'm an Uber driver and I'm there's no way to know whether somebody is getting in the car with a loaded gun either or all of a sudden putting a gun to your head and saying, take me to where I want to go and and don't make any noise about it. And here's the strange part. After she did this and the car hit barriers and came to a stop, she called 911 and then she took a picture of the driver with the bullet in his head and texted it to her boyfriend. Yeah, that's quite unreal. But also, if you shoot the driver of a moving car, like you're 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 putting yourself at tremendous risk that he's again going over an overpass or or veering into another lane of traffic. It's um it's a case that's going to be worth watching. All right, we saw this, and you know we have these conversations all the time. I think it's one of the most uh, uh, congenial conversations we have on the air, but it's all about this. Let's let you first hear Larry David from Curb Enthusiasm uh, and the anti-shorts uh, campaigning that's happening right now. A little traveling tip. Try not to wear shorts. Not all that attractive to look at for five hours. Are you Honestly? kidding? No, I'm not. I wear these on every flight when I travel. Really? Because it's yes. very comfortable. These planes, yeah. if you notice, get very hot. Ah, yes. I'm do. sorry. I didn't see yeah. where I had to check you with know, the person I'm, I'm sitting next to what I'm I should wear. I'm comfortable in pajamas, but I don't wear pajamas on a plane. I like to sing. I like to whistle. I like to play the bongos on my leg. I like to imitate horses, okay. but I don't do it. Right. Okay? Yeah. Because okay. there's somebody sitting next to me. Okay. Oh, you're very uptight, dude. Very uptight. uptight? It's just, I don't it's think just it's uptight. shorts, man. I don't think it's uptight. It's just, you've never seen a man's legs? Yeah, they're grotesque. What if they were a woman's in a skirt? Would you say that to her? If a woman's in a skirt? If they were hairy. Okay. Wow. <laughs> shots fired on uh, in, in business class of the airplane. So in the star this morning, Sheba, there's, there's two questions. I love it. Are shorts okay at work? Should men wear sandals? And basically, the first sentence, dressing for an office environment can be a minefield regardless of the season. I don't feel that way. That's stressing me out now. Maybe I'm doing things wrong I don't know about. I Have you ever worn shorts to work? Nope. I don't feel you have. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever seen you in shorts. <laughs> Gord Rennie's shooting daggers at me right now because he's like, come on. Okay, listen. First of all, let's preface this. As we're a morning show. Right. We're here before no one else is in the building. We leave when everyone's coming in. So I feel like we get a little bit of leeway. We can. We're allowed to have a little bit of leeway because we're not seeing anybody unless we have a meeting, you know, afterwards and everybody shows up in a collared shirt that day. I assume somebody might see me in the hallways at a point in time. And you know, sometimes I go from soft pants to hard pants if there's in-studio guests. Oh, yes. That's a big priority I've never for seen, me. Yes, you I always wear I don't want to wear a tracksuit to interview a mayoral no. candidate. You always look, we all look more presentable when we have in-studio right. guests, I feel. <laughs> right. We don't do it for each other. We could, we could care less about each other. No, we don't. But what, okay, so 
but I, I'm reading all this. Like, there's there's a lot of great advice in this column. Do bare arms if you're comfortable with it. But not spaghetti straps. And this is only for women. Like, can I tell you something? How do you feel about that? Well, yeah. It, so explain the difference between a strapless, like something that is that shows your shoulders and arms um, off that, that's probably stylish and lets your arms breathe. And spaghetti straps. What's the difference? Well, spaghetti between spaghetti straps the is like it's a piece of spaghetti. It's like a string that holds the shirt together, and it goes over your shoulder. There's much more a skin exposed. I guess they seem to think it's less professional. But if you wear, let's say, a sleeveless shirt, it's just it's an actual shirt without the sleeve, so it's got a thicker upper area. Uh, and they say that if you are going to wear a sleeveless shirt or a conservative sleeveless blouse, as they're calling it, uh, always have a blazer or a jacket handy if you need to head into a meeting or a courtroom. <laughs> no spaghetti straps if you're on trial uh, for any anything. Even tax, but how do you feel about that? That according to this etiquette, I, I can wear a sleeveless shirt, but you can't. I think you'll have a stronger opinion, and I'll bring in my male friend here, Gord Rennie. I I, I don't think any man's ever had an opinion about the distinction between strapless versus spaghetti straps. I, I really don't. I don't think oh, I'd a feel big totally uncomfortable oh. if I was the CEO putting a policy together about what should be on your shoulder and what shouldn't be. Uh, well, when I, I think about it, I, I'd say that, you know, uh, spaghetti straps is more of like a evening wear as opposed to like... It's sexier. It, yeah, it's it supposed is. to in the office. It's just like... You know, seeing someone in a, a dude in a muscle top shirt at work, it's just, it's a little more relaxed. Let's leave Dave Bradley out of this. And <laughs> anyway, well, listen, no, no, he, well, he dresses classy. He does. About exposing your feet, okay? All right. The male foot in its natural state is one of those things that's best preserved for the private sphere, no matter how comfortable those burks you've, you've, <gasps> you've had are. Uh, men should never wear sandals to work. This is what the experts This is say. the most decisive part of the entire article, is men and bare feet, nah-uh. That's the most decisive. Like, I feel, I feel um, well, seen, but also, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. The male foot, imagine writing the sentence scored, the female blank in its natural state is one of those things that's best preserved for the private <laughs> You would never say that we about We covered that a few segments ever. ago. Yeah. That's what you called. So it's a sexist order. article right now. We can, we can actually, agree. I do feel this is a sexist article. I mean, but have either of you ever worn Birkenstocks or sandals no. to work? No. I have before. Not not at this workplace, but I have before, and I did feel <laughs> icky wearing them. I have to admit. You know what? I had. I mean, this segment has come up. I think it was last Monday. I wore my Birkenstocks. I got no problem. No, but nobody has a problem. I no, think but again, I felt uncomfortable. I did like a, a double take as I was leaving the house. Should I put them on? I was like, oh, I was about to say something I can't say. I was like, oh. I think, I think that's a more, I'd like to go there with text instead of the shorts thing. But like, like the female feet vis-a-vis male feet in the office, how people feel about it. I Again, think in I, the summer, it's great. If you I have think a really nice dress or an outfit and you have these pretty strappy sandals, I think you should wear them. Especially if you have, yeah, your feet have to be clean and like, you know, toes pedicured. Not necessarily nail polish, but just clean cut, you know, nice Hygiene. Do you draw the line is different between Birkenstocks and slides and Birkenstocks? No, and, no slides. And um, and what are those things called at the beach that just have the one the flip flop? Yeah. No, you can't wear flip flops. It's like a thong. It's not a. You, just, <laughs> it's you, know, a, you know what I mean? It's a thong <laughs> why, shoe. Why are you so what uncomfortable? Is it? Oh is my that, gosh! Is that that one where it loops over the big toe? Yes, that drives me crazy. A, that it separates four toes from one They're toe. So I hate the feel of it. Yeah. So here's a couple of texts that we got in. No male feet in any situation. <laughs> If my Uber driver shows up in, my Uber Eats driver shows up in flip-flops or sandals, that food is going back. That's a little extreme. Do you think that's only male um, 
Uber that's, Eats drivers or skip the dishes drivers? That's just extreme. I think so too. It's not like they're they're putting the food on their feet. <laughs> Well, good Lord. It's like, so what if you're having a barbecue in the back where people would wear sandals and there's food around? Would you not eat? Yeah. Great point. I don't know. That's a a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's another one. Believe it or not, open toe shoes in the workplace is a violation of the Occupational Health and Safety Act. Every employer must do everything reasonable to protect a worker. That would include wearing clothes, open toe, wearing closed toe shoes, regardless of the rules. That being said. Yes for women, no for men. Yeah, they haven't seen my mom's feet. Um, oh, oh my! God. <laughs> I think it's more the condition wow. of the nails than it is the the like. I I think like sometimes I'm like you know, mom, like are you going as a velociraptor for Halloween? Like, Send her for a pedicure. Cut those suckers once in a while. Here, I mom, should do that. Here comes the eight fifty five bus. <laughs> 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 I, it's not. She, I think she has very nice toes. Yeah. I don't know that I inherited those nice toes, but uh, but sometimes it's the condition of the nails. I told yeah. you guys I came to work one day and there were what clearly looked like nails, like in the in the near the console where we'd set up to work for the show, and we yeah. were like, "Who Disgusting. did this? That's not right. Who did this? This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. Six forty. Toronto. What's this about Russia again? What's this about the head of Wagner? What's this about a coup and the potential beginning to, if not a civil war, certainly military infighting um, in in the streets of several cities in southern Russia? What an oddity over the weekend. And it the coup may be over, but maybe this is the start of some trouble for Vladimir Putin. I think the majority of the world community hopes that's the case. Uh, I want to play you this quickly before we get to our next guest. I'm really looking forward to talk to him. Constantine Kissin, we've played him before, um, who uh, has a, uh, a podcast in the UK. Uh, he was asked why Putin uses private armies like Wagner to get into what ended up happening over the weekend. The Americans uh, had, I don't know if you remember this scandal, there was a scandal in Iraq when uh, some people from a company called uh, Blackwater, mm. they killed civilians uh, in Iraq and there was a big scandal. The guy had to sell his company. Uh, uh, they changed the name, blah, 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 blah. But, but basically a lot of big company, uh, big countries around the world have been experimenting with this model where mm. you have armed mercenaries that are acting under your direct control, but they're not directly attributable to your to you. Yeah, uh, this is not new. It's not 21st century. I think you could make the case um, there was so much dispute. I wrote a bunch of papers about Central America in um, in university. I was fascinated by it. The struggle between the Contras and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and that was far from the only Central American country during the Cold War, um, that especially for those eight years, Ronald Reagan and the Republicans were trying to arm, outfit, protect um, and and keep clear so it doesn't look like it's funded by the United States of America. I'm very pleased to welcome on our next guest. I found him on uh, on Twitter over the weekend. I found his insights so strong. We shared it with a bunch of other people. Uh, Timothy Milovanov is the president of the Kiev School of Economics, and he joins us now. Thank you very much for calling us, and I really appreciate you uh, giving us some of your time this morning. Hello. Yeah, thank you. Happy to have you. You wrote something that I thought was really, really smart, Timothy. Uh, and it's uh, the concept that that now things are a little bit unstable. You wrote the war sanctions and now mutiny threaten stability. There are definitely questions about whether there is political unity in Putin's ranks. How strong do you feel about that? Putin's power is based on the social contract with the people of Russia. 
basically he says, listen, don't worry about democracy and human rights, I'll take them, but you get stability, and that stability is economic, uh, militarily, political, and security, and that was post, um, post um, 90s, which were very, very difficult for Russians, mm-hmm. post uh, Yeltsin times. And I think now this, uh, we can't question that, question that social contract, because people had tanks rolling into Rostov-on-Don, People had air, air force being shut down on highways. Highways were bombed way into Russia, not even close to, um, to the Ukrainian border. And on top with sanctions, on top with the Belgrade incursions previously, this all signals that Putin can't deliver anymore on the stability social contract. And so that opens the door for other political forces to start testing borders whether they can be the next, uh, the next Putin, so to speak. So in my view, the race or the kind of uh, the auction, um, the if you will, for the next Putin has begun. Pergozin wanted um, the Minister of Defense gone or fired. He wanted the Chief of the General Staff fired. Um, that, that resonates with our audience, but why, why stop and, and basically take a Putin deal that sees him exiled to Belarus? Like, if, sort of, if you, you can't go halfway in on this without going all the way, but it looks like he has. True. Um, I'm an economist, so I think in terms of asymmetric information and incentives. And um, from my perspective, it is that Prigozhin either got a very good deal from Putin, which we don't know yet. And actually, I don't trust that theory because yeah. I don't trust any deals Putin would, uh, would give out. And uh, the second one, he just didn't get enough support within the military as he was marching towards uh, Moscow. He didn't get enough commanders to, to endorse him or get enough troops to join him. And in that sense, he turned out to be weaker. That happens in attempted coups and mutinies. I think you said something, well, you hinted at something really smart there, that either um, this could involve money for Prigozhin, and, and he, you know, he's, he, he's a brutal killer, um, but, but some of these brutal killers don't mind um, you know, uh, suitcases full of cash um, and, and exile if it gets them where they need to get to. The other thing you bring up is the idea that there's no guarantee Prigozhin's safe at any point in time. People have a tendency to fall out of windows. People have a tendency to get in car crashes. People have a tendency to get poisoned uh, during the Putin regime. I, I, I'd be looking around every corner if I'm him the rest of my life. Absolutely. I think his life is in danger regardless of the deal and regardless of whether this deal is held or not. He is going to be looking around for the rest of his life. But uh, you are correct about the funds, the money. First of all, uh, uh, Wagner operates also in Africa, in some other, in Global South more generally. Mm-hmm. And they support some really, really nasty deals. So about several billion dollars is already, and it's by the government of pseudo-governed money on their accounts. So that's one source of it. Also, there are a lot of money which from semi-sanctioned uh, oil and gas trade because Russia is under sanctions, but they are trying to bypass the sanctions. So there is a lot of money uh, in all kinds of intermediary accounts. Either they could have been involved in this, or uh, it could be that this is part of the deal. So Wagner is probably involved in much more than just military, also in financial operations, at least in Africa. 
And so the deal probably involved uh, some kind of settlement around that. And Wagner might have more leverage um, than just Wagner warriors, uh, but uh, also access to funds, accounts, and so much and so forth. Timothy Malovinov, our, our guest president of the Key School of Economics, joining us on Toronto Today. This is great insight here. What's the appetite of the Russian people in your mind, uh, Timothy? Like they'd watch what happened over the weekend and they also are 16, 17 months in into a brutal war. There's not they're not going to be welcome back into the world community at any time soon. So what's the appetite to continue sending like like their young people into basically to either slaughter or or be slaughtered by invading Ukraine. What's the appetite? How long can how long can Russian people sustain this? Uh, you are again right on the mark here because before the story was very simple. You know there are these Nazis in Ukraine. There is this NATO and the West which wants to get Russia. Uh, they would have attacked us anyway right. had we not invaded Ukraine. But in reality, what happens is that their own military, private military, attacks Russia much, much more than any NATO, you know. So I think that can challenge some of the conceptions and some of the opinions uh, among Russian people. But also we have to remember that have, they have very little access to information. And uh, this um, mutiny will be downplayed by the state media. The, it will probably be more obvious for, for people who were in the south of Russia, mm. but not for the rest of the country. So propaganda machine there is very, very strong. One last thing, um, and, and I think it's something you touched on as well. You say people shouldn't be discouraged that the coup, quote unquote, didn't work. But people here in Canada, North America, Western Europe, um, the pressure has to continue here because the pressure may have brought this on um, to, to this point. And, but, but, but they have to keep going and tighten the screws. Absolutely. I actually believe that's the result of pressure. Because the yeah. war was supposed to be the three days, one week march in Kiev, you know, and we take over uh, Kiev and Ukraine as we did uh, uh, Crimea in 2014, and it's all win, win all around for everyone, you know, great. Uh, but that didn't happen. And now we're 15, 16 months into this, hundreds of thousands of people dead, troops are exhausted, um, and now mm. there's pressure and cracks inside the Russian military. So it is true that it sends a very, very clear signal yeah. back to the Kremlin that, you know, maybe you have to do something about it. And if we continue to put this pressure on, on Kremlin, maybe they will negotiate. But I think we're not quite there. No, not there. Not there yet. But it's um, progress happens to be progress. Timothy, I can't thank you enough for giving us some of your time this morning and uh, loved having you on our show here in Toronto. Thanks again. Thank you. Timothy Malovinov, our guest, president of the Kiev School of Economics.